Thank you, Ted, for shepherding us in prayer, and Peter in song. And uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. And uh, I hope those who are outside are staying warm. A couple of plugs seems to be what I do these days, but if the Lord has put it on your heart to serve in the local church, we could use some folks in the AV team, for sure, uh, to increase our numbers and to help that ministry. And at the end of the day, it's a ministry of the word and prayer and vital to uh, make known our God. And then uh, the second plug is for this afternoon at 4 o'clock, I hope you will join me at uh, Cornerstone. Um, The unofficial title of our session this uh, afternoon at 4 o'clock on Zoom is going to be, um, bear with me here, it's going to be more than roommates. If you've ever heard that phrase that's been made sometimes um, between a husband and wife, we're just roommates. But uh, whether you're single or whether you're married, God has a blueprint and he has a provision for us to be more than just roommates with one another. And so that's what we're going to be considering uh, this afternoon at four o'clock. And I hope you'll join us. And even if you are just roommates rooming together, I think you'll find this uh, an encouragement and a help. Well, brothers and sisters, this, this past week, obviously, one of many Challenging weeks in our nation, but something that hits close to home with the loss of life, with another mass shooting, and whether a mass shooting takes place in an elementary school, or whether it takes place in a church, or whether it takes place in a massage spa, regardless of where it is, or who it is, or what color their skin is. The taking of a life is a grievous and heartbreaking thing. And it is a time and season where we really need to be in prayer for our nation. We need to be in prayer for the victims. We need to, the family members. Um, And we also need to be in prayer for the young man who perpetrated this crime. And as we wrestle as a community with this recent rise in violent crimes against Asians, so to speak. We've got to put it in context, don't we? That as COVID has squeezed this nation, we've seen many things that are unpleasant regardless of the color of our skin. we also have to consider how does the Lord want us to understand and how does He want us to see these things. And through all of this, what has been particularly disturbing and revealing, regardless of the color of our skin, what's been particularly revealing and disturbing has been our nation's unwillingness and inability to own and to deal with our hate and our resentment, our anger, our blame shifting, and our violence. And I say are because we are Americans. I say are because there is no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man. Yes, indeed. 
Of the eight lives that were taken, six were Asian women. But two were not, and their lives are precious as well. And the bigger scheme and the bigger consideration is how are we dealing with this? And what we've seen is just an absolute inability to deal with the heart-related issues. Especially this hate and this resentment and this anger and this blame shifting and this violence towards immigrants, towards women, towards seniors. But as we come to Scripture, really, the category is the least among us. Regardless of who, male, female, the least among us, those who are vulnerable. And the widows and the orphans in Scripture and the sojourners to whom the Lord says He is their protector that they have value, that they're special, and that the Lord calls for an extra measure of protection because they are not able to protect themselves. And sadly, brothers and sisters, you know, we're shocked by this, but none of this is new. The executive director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, that's a lengthy name, I intend to start a national forum for short, balding Asian males. But whether you agree with their politics or not, they made a statement, the director of this organization, the statement was, it's taken six Asian American women dying in one day to get people to pay attention to this. It's taken six Asian American women dying in one day to get people to pay attention to this. And whether we disagree with the politics of this person, we have to say that's a valid observation. But we also have to say, too, we've had mass shootings in elementary schools, and that hasn't changed the heart or the template or the model, or the direction of the nation either. Even when it did get our attention. And for all our protests, for all our civil rights and social justice movements, for all our wealth, for all our education and technology, and for all the promises being made by social media, Silicon Valley, and our politicians to make the world a better place, And whether it's the chance on the one hand of make America great again or on the other for Black Lives Matter, when it comes to the things that really matter, we continue to be hopelessly lost. And just reading, brothers and sisters, all the blogs and all the journals and everything online about what happened this week, you will see there is no shortage of rage and screaming and shouting and craziness and ideas and opinions that are all over the map. But let me propose this to you, brothers and sisters, that the most pathetic thing of all in all of this is our persistence in trying to understand and fix our depravity, because that's what we witnessed this week, our persistence in trying to understand and fix our depravity ourselves rather than, rather than, brothers and sisters, simply looking to the one who is willing and able to make things right. 
trying to fix things ourselves, trying to come up with ideas, trying to come up with theories, dealing with all this speculation rather than simply saying, we don't have it together, we have a problem, and there is someone who understands what is going on and can help us. Why don't we look to Him? Because brothers... And sisters, this is what the gospel is all about. I tell my boys this on a regular basis. The gospel, being a Christian is not about being perfect and without sin. And that's not to excuse sin. Being a Christian is simply someone who by faith is willing to say, I don't have it together. I don't have the cure and remedy for my heart. And by faith, I'm going to look to Christ, the Son of God, to fix what I cannot fix in my own heart. That, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the Gospel. And that is the good news of God's Word. And brothers and sisters, that is what Genesis 3, what we've been studying, is all about. It's about the Lord God in love intervening in the lives of hopeless and helpless sinners who have made a mess of their lives and who have made a mess of their marriage and who have made a mess of their world. And it's about the Lord God and love stepping in in their lives and making things right according to His Word. And that's why in the psalm that we read earlier this morning where David, King David, who was no stranger to sin and abuse and violence, other men, but also his own, That is why he had such joy and delight in the face of very ugly and difficult circumstances. Because rather than deal with men or the solutions of men, he looked to the Lord. And as he looked to the Lord, as we heard this morning, he drove into the character of God, what Peter pointed to us this morning. And as he looked into the character of God through the testimony of his word, What he saw, rather than the sinfulness and ugliness of men, was a God of steadfast love, of holiness and righteousness, of mercy and grace, who desires and is willing to make crooked roads and lives and nations and churches and people straight. And that, brothers and sisters, is what Genesis 3 is all about. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 3, and we'll start reading from verse 8. And we're going to consider this morning the justice of the Lord, but very specifically, how does the Lord make a mess straight and right according to His Word? Genesis 3.8 And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. He clothed them. Thank you. Okay, our first point this morning, as we come to God's Word, is a consideration of how the Lord begins to make things right. How does the Lord begin to make things right in your life? How does He begin to make them right in my life? How does He begin to make things right in our marriages and in our homes and in our churches, especially when sin has broken things? He doesn't set up a blog. He doesn't set up a journal. He steps in and He speaks into people's lives and He does so with His Word. And very specifically, when He does so, when things are broken... He doesn't give us a pat on the shoulder and says, Job well done. Keep going. The Lord God personally holds all men accountable to His Word. The Lord God personally holds all men accountable to His Word. And this is what we're seeing starting in Genesis 3.8. The Lord God comes in and He steps in and He speaks into the lives of the first man and woman and He asks a series of questions and He begins to hold them accountable. And those are just not random questions. He's holding them specifically accountable to His Word. This past week, after the shooting happened, you're all familiar, the sheriff came out and made a statement that the shooting suspect was having a bad day and had uh, come to the end of his rope and was struggling with uh, a sexual addiction. This was the explanation that was given at the press conference. And of course, there was a flood of protest of, you know, what is this and what are you saying? Even the secular world and unbelievers call out a stinker when they see it and when they hear it. As if having a bad day and a sex addiction is a justification for taking someone's life. But at the same time, there were a group of ex-evangelicals who were quick to post a photo of the suspect's baptism Facebook post. And what also came out in the news was that the young man who was a suspect and who admitted to shooting these people grew up and was raised in a church that had some teaching that was very similar to what we've heard here about gender-specific roles coming out of the book of Genesis. 
And in fact, in the media and both among believers, but also within the Christian community, there were those who began to suggest that evangelicalism's purity culture and gender rules and teaching on gender rules was what made this young man feel ashamed, guilty, self-hatred rather than loving himself, feeling he had a problem when he didn't because it should be normal for men to look at pornography and not hate themselves. And because of this, and because of this teaching coming from Genesis, taught in conservative evangelical churches about servant leaders and servant helpers, that these things played a role in this young man's hatred and violence directed towards immigrants and women. Now those arguments for many may sound convincing. But as we consider the first man and woman's response to the Lord God's questions in verses 8 through 13, where the first man points his finger at the woman God gave him, as the reason for his disobeying God's command. And for the first woman pointing to the serpent and his deception as the reason she broke God's command. The Lord God shows us that blame shifting and making excuses for our sin is nothing new. And the good news of Genesis 3, brothers and sisters, is God does not abandon the first man and woman to their opinions or to their excuses or to their blame shifting. What a gracious God. He doesn't just say, hey, just go at it and go down this endless noodling of associations, conjectures, and speculations. Instead, from beginning to end, as we look at this passage, what the Lord God does is He holds the first man and woman accountable to His Word. It's all that matters. You can talk till the cows come home. What matters at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, have you obeyed the Word of the Lord or have you not? And in this situation of this week, if we're to apply this, what matters at the end of the day is not how many rehab programs you were in, not what church you were raised in, not what they taught from the pulpit. The bottom line is, did you obey God's word, thou shalt not murder, or did you disobey it? And when we come to the questions that the Lord gives, we see that a lot of times, brothers and sisters, we spend a lot of time thinking and discussing and talking about nonsense and trash that doesn't get to the heart of the issue or the heart of the problem. And because of that, we don't get to the heart of the remedy. And that's what God is interested in for the first man and woman. And you look at the questions that He asks in the very beginning in verses 9 through 13. Verse 9, where are you? Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Verse 11, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And verse 13, what is this that you have done? And I would propose to you, brothers and sisters, that these four questions get to the heart of all our sin, all our crimes, all our problems, all our domestic disputes... Here's an observation for you. And the Lord God's questioning of both the first man and woman. Who does He ask the most questions of? You can shout it out. 
were not that tightly wound. Added up, he asked three questions to the man and one question to the woman. Who's he holding most accountable here for what went down? For all of those who want to look at Genesis as being misogynist, successist, patriarchal, so on and so forth. For everything that's broken, the Lord God holds man first and most accountable. And you're going to see this pattern going on and on through the passage. And why? Because the man is most accountable based on Genesis 1 and 2 for being the servant leader and for having been given the Word of God. And together, the Lord God's questions here, they cut through the smokescreen of our excuses and lies. And it holds us all accountable to the one thing that matters the most. It's His Word. That's the only truth that really matters at the end of the day. And if we're sort of going to paraphrase these and just sort of turn them into principles, so to speak. You know, the Lord God is essentially asking the first man and woman, who are you walking with? Are you walking according to my word or are you not? It's what the elders and the shepherds here try to do is we come and we see someone who's struggling. You can tell me everything that's going on, the bad day, your bad dad, all of those different things. But in love, what we want to know, move all that out of the way, regardless of how bad the family was that you came from, regardless of how bad the churches you came out of, how is your walk with the Lord? Are you walking with Him according to His Word? Or are you running away from Him? Because that's what the first man and woman were doing. They're hiding there in the trees. Where are you? And brothers and sisters, it's a question that we have to ask ourselves. And here's the next one. Whose word rules our lives? Is the rule that rules our lives, is it the rule of our feelings, our emotions, our experiences? Well, in my experience, or is it God's Word? Is it God's Word? When He says, who told you that you were naked? He's asking them. He's saying, look, where did you get this from? Who are you listening to? Whose Word have you been listening to? Have you been listening to my Word or everybody else's Word? Or what you think is right in your own eyes? Whatever the circumstance or explanation, did we obey or did we disobey the Lord God's command? And finally, what have we done? What have we done according to God's Word? I had one pastor call me and tell me about someone who was being very destructive and said, well, this person is just a hothead. I said, what's your opinion? He said, well, he's just a hothead. Blows off a lot of steam, more smoke than fire, you know, says a lot of things, but really, you know, he's just a hothead. But the thought that goes through my mind is, look, is he obeying God's Word or is he not obeying God's Word? Is what's coming out of his mouth edifying and building up and constructive and helping or is it tearing down? Fathers and husbands, it's no excuse for us to say that we're angry or irritable with our children or our wives because we have not had a lot of sleep or we have a lot of stress on the job. The bottom line is, are we obeying God? Are we walking with Him? Are we reflecting His love and His character in the home or not? And for what happened this week, the bottom line is, regardless of what you want to say or how you want to say or what the influence is, were lives taken or were they not? 
And I say this, brothers and sisters, for us, because at the end of the day, each one of us is going to have to stand before the Lord, our God and our Creator. And at the end of the day, what we are going to be held accountable to is not the opinions of men, not the theories of men, not the theories of psychologists of why people hate themselves and go out and do terrible things. What we're going to be answerable to is the Word of the Lord, plain and simple. And it's a mercy and it's a love and it's a kindness of God when He brings those things to us and holds us accountable to His Word in this life earlier rather than later. And as as uncomfortable as it may make ourselves feel about ourselves, until we see where we stand in relationship to the Lord, and until we see where we stand in relationship to His Word, we will never see the mercy and grace that we so desperately need and that the Lord has given us in Christ. And we will never look for the help and we will stay drowning in the myriad of excuses and blame shifting and reasons of why we did terrible things. And I hate to say it, brothers and sisters, but that's a lot of America today and it's a lot of the church today too. Because believe it or not, brothers and sisters, the hope that we need and the help that we so desperately need, it actually begins with the justice and the judgment of God's Word in our lives. And what we're doing when we go down that other path and we avoid asking those questions and coming face to face with the Word of the Lord, what we're doing, brothers and sisters, is we're taking hope away from people and we're taking help away from them. As long as I go on and say to that brother, yeah, the things that come out of your mouth are no big deal. You're just a hothead. The things that you say to your wife, no big deal. You're just a hothead. The things that you say to the elders of the church, you're just a hothead. The world calls that enabling. But, you know, there's not hope for that man to find out and discover that God shows mercy and grace to hotheads. And to sinners whose speech is sinful and whose hearts are consumed by bitterness and pride and anger, the Lord has a remedy. It's called the cross. It's called forgiveness. It's called repentance and faith in Christ where there's a new heart and a new life where what comes out of your mouth is not hot-headed words. It's love. It's encouragement. It's mercy. It's truth and grace where you become an encouragement rather than a tool of Satan's divisiveness. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. The Lord God's judgment points sinners to the truth and grace of His Word. The Lord God's judgment points sinners to the truth and grace of His Word. This is what God's justice and judgment does. And this is why we need it. And this is why, brothers and sisters, as hard as it is, it actually gives hope and help to those who are broken. Why? Because it brings us back to the truth and grace of God's Word. It brings us back to the cross. And this is what the Lord God shows the first man and woman, and He shows us in verses 14 through 18. 
The Lord God personally, after He's asked these questions, He then goes and speaks into everyone who's involved in what's gone down in the garden. Everyone who's been involved in the breaking of His Word. He speaks to each one. And to each He renders a verdict or a judgment. Okay, I heard your answers. Here we go. This is the way things are going to be. He gives a verdict and a judgment for each one individually. And He gives it to each one individually for what they have individually said and done. The Lord God does this personally. He goes first to the serpent in verses 14 and 15. And then He goes to the first woman in verse 16. And finally He goes to Adam in verses 17 through 19. And as you look at this closely, neither the order nor the content of the Lord God's judgment is arbitrary or by accident. The order of the Lord God's judgment follows the order of involvement in breaking God's command, beginning with the serpent. And as you walk through this, and you look at this, and all you need to do, I'll give you a hint, is just add up the verses. Who gets the biggest judgment? You can say it. You don't have to be tightly wound. Who gets the biggest judgment? The man does. Well done. Well done. Okay? We get two verses for the serpent, one verse for the woman, and you get three verses, and those three verses are packed. And why is that the case? Well, number one observation, the Lord God's judgment is not about equal rights. It's not one size fits all. It's not, you're a man, you're a woman, you're all going to get the same. It's not about equal rights, brothers and sisters, and it's not based upon what we think we deserve. The reason there is a distinction, not only in the order, but the extent of the judgment, where the man gets the most, is because it's based upon... The Lord God's judgment is based upon the truth and grace of His Word. This is the economy of God's justice and His judgment. To whom much truth and grace is given, much is required. Now, that's a proverb that Jesus, a paraphrasing a proverb that Jesus states and that's stated in the New Testament. But the spirit of that is throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whom the Lord gives much truth and grace, whom the Lord has blessed richly, He requires a great account. And to whom has been given the most truth and grace in Genesis 1 and 2? It's the man. Do I lie? Right? The man has received God's Word directly. The man has been given a helper fit for him. The man has been given an opportunity to name and to lead. The man has been given the command to come and work the ground but, and to eat of any tree he wants, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The grace in abundance has been given first and foremost to the first man. The economy, what I want you to see here, brothers and sisters, is the economy here is God's truth and grace. That is His standard. 
What have I given you? I'm going to hold you accountable for the giftedness. And brothers and sisters, that means when we go to heaven, when we stand before the Lord, He's going to hold me a lot more accountable. And when He takes me behind the woodshed to spank me for what hasn't gone, I'm going to get a lot more than you all. Elders, deacons, goes that way too. And we see this pattern with each individual. And what we see is that the punishment and the discipline the Lord gives for each individual for their sin, that also is not random. To the first woman in verse 16, the Lord God multiplies her sorrow and suffering and pain in childbirth. To the first man in verse 17 through 19, the Lord gives sorrow and suffering and pain in the man's eating and work throughout the entirety of his life. And we see that each punishment and discipline points directly to the gender-specific life of truth and grace that each individual was given in Genesis 1 and 2 and that each individual walked away from, from the devil's lie. Okay, there's a, a reason God is doing what He's doing. He's not being sexist. He's not being misogynistic. And in fact, he holds the man more accountable than the woman or even the serpent. And unlike the punishment and the discipline of men, the Lord God's punishment and discipline, it's not a weapon simply to inflict suffering and pain, and it is also not simply a tool to control or remove what offends. Now, I highlight that because, brothers and sisters, our economy of justice, what we see in the movies, what we hear about in the courts, what we see played out, so often, it's an eye for an eye. You need to suffer as much as you made me suffer. You hurt me in such a way, in the dentist chair, in the physician's office, so I'm going to come back at you and make you suffer and hurt and remember. It's inflicting pain and suffering and trying to put the same suffering that someone's experienced to go through that. It's based so often, brothers and sisters, on a human, fallen human view of vengeance. It's not based on an economy of truth and grace. And we see this played out over and over again. And so often the justice that we call for is a justice that simply removes what we find offensive or ugly. It's terminator justice. Is it a problem? Let's do whatever we can to get rid of it so we never have to see it again. Now, does that sound far away? Because, brothers and sisters, many times that is the framework that informs the discipline in our parenting and the discipline that takes place or the justice that's called for in our relationships. Parents, when we discipline kids, is it based on an economy of truth or grace? Or are we simply trying to manage bad behavior and make it go away so we don't have to deal with it? Especially when we're tired and haven't had a whole lot of sleep or it's embarrassing in front of the entirety of the church. Now, there's no testing or temptation that is common to man, brothers and sisters. I know we all struggle with that. And when our flesh is big, that's where we go. Okay? What do I need to do? There's lots of noise in the house and I'm trying to sermon prep. Make it go away. Make it go away. Right? I'm not above it or I'm not better. 
But as we come and see the justice that the Lord God is giving, it's very different, brothers and sisters, because it has a purpose. And as we look at God's justice here, we see that the purpose is not ultimately to inflict pain. That is part of it. That's discipline. But ultimately, God's discipline and His justice is redemptive. It's redemptive. That the purpose, even with the discipline that He gives, is to remind the man and woman what they've walked away from and what they need. It's to remind them that the life of God's Word is what they so desperately need and it is a precious gift from God. It's grace and truth and grace and truth and grace and truth rather than selfishness and the devil's lies. The Lord is steering them back. And we say this as a church. Parents... Our discipline is meant to be redemptive if we're going to model it after the Lord and if we're going to walk in the Spirit. That with our children, the purpose and aim in our interaction is to point them away from the devil's lies and to point them towards the character of God, His truth and His grace. That they can't do this on their own. They need a Savior. It's a preparation for the gospel. And by extension, church family, the discipline that is to take place in a church body is not just to get rid of someone because they're causing a problem in the church. Oh, this is annoying. You know, typically the way it goes is nobody wants to deal with it because it's unpleasant. Nobody wants to come and say, what you're doing is contrary to the word of the Lord. Okay? So then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until sort of nobody can avoid it. Everybody's feeling uncomfortable. And then suddenly church discipline is this opportunity to get a person out of the church so we don't have to deal with it anymore. But as we come to God's Word and you see Matthew 18 and you see Galatians 6 and you see the heart of Christ, see it's very, very different in the hands of the Lord. He's redemptive. What He does is He comes, He comes, He comes, He comes. He pleads, He pleads, He pleads, He pleads. And He points to the Word and He points to the Word and He points to the Word because what He's doing with more and more people is He's calling someone back to His truth and grace. And He's saying, you're walking in a way that is away from the life of my truth and grace. And you need to get back on track and you need to come in this direction. And even at the point where the whole church pursues, the purpose and the end of that is to see, to beg them to look and to behold and to draw near to the character of God's truth and grace because that is the only remedy, brothers and sisters, for what is broken because it's the only remedy for our sin. Removing the problem is not what God is up to, brothers and sisters. Redeeming sinners is what Genesis through Revelation is about. Does the Lord eventually abandon people? Yes, He does. But as you go through Genesis through Revelation, as you see it, He is patient, He is patient, He pleads, He pleads, He calls to repentance, He sends all the prophets, He even sends His own Son. But yes, indeed, we have to be careful. There is a time where he draws the line and he abandons people and he gives them up to the hardness of their heart. But this, as we come back to Genesis, brothers and sisters, is the beginning. And it brings us to our final point for this morning. And let me warn you, this final point, it's a little detailed, it's a little Bible nerd, but I think there's a very big payoff. And it's that the Lord God is a good father 
and shepherd who makes things right according to His Word. The Lord God is a good Father and Shepherd who makes things right according to His Word. And I put this here because this, I believe, is the big overarching message of Genesis chapter 3. And this is where God is bringing the first man and woman after they've walked away from Him and they've broken their relationship with Him and they've broken their relationship with one another. And what they so desperately need is not another opinion or not another fig leaf, What they so desperately need is a God and a good Father and a good Shepherd who's going to put their lives back together again. And that's exactly what He does. And He does that though, brothers and sisters, with His justice and His judgment. And this, I believe, is the key to rightly understanding what the Lord God means when He says to the first woman in verse 16, Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that's the NASB. Okay? The ESV says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. Now there's no shortage of controversy over these words. Not only in the media, but also among professing Christians. And professing Christians who point to, as I said before, the conservative evangelical teaching on purity and gender roles being influencers in guilt and self-hatred and violence towards women. And the conclusion that many of these folks draw is that with these words, the Lord God is punishing the first woman with a life of marital conflict and being dominated and abused by men. And the suggestion is that the woman after the fall is going to be destined for the rest of her life to be a manipulator of men. Now sadly, as you hear these things, we can see how such a misinterpretation might promote abuse and hatred of women in the wrong hands. And it also stirs up the pot of calling for a liberation theology that calls for the emancipation of women from marriage and from men. But brothers and sisters, a careful consideration of the context of these words in Scripture points us in a very, very different direction. It points us to the truth and grace of a good father and shepherd who is willing and able to do what we can't do for ourselves and what we so necessarily need. He's putting back together the relationship that the first man and woman broke with their sin. And as we consider verse 16, the two words which create much of the confusion and controversy are the two words, desire and rule. Desire and rule. Okay? Because the desire allegedly is the woman's desire, okay, to dominate, control, manipulate her husband or her desire to possess her husband. And the rule that's spoken of here is allegedly a rule of the husband to control his wife who's out of hand and who's crazy town. But what's interesting, brothers and sisters, is the Hebrew word that Moses uses in verse 16 to describe that first word, desire. The Hebrew word that he uses is shawach. And at its simplest, It simply refers to a desire or longing for someone else or something else. Simply a longing and desire. It's very simplest, okay? And so the question comes, is this a good desire? 
Or is it a bad desire? Is it a desire to dominate and control and possess? And many people look to Genesis 4, 7, where God speaks to Cain as Cain is upset. And God says to Cain and warns him, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you or contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Some people look there because it's the same word for desire that's used there. But interestingly in the Old Testament, there's only two places where this exact word is used. It's there and it's also the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Chapter 7, verse 10. Song of Solomon, 7.10, where it says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I had a Jewish medical partner. One of my wedding gifts is a plaque with that written on it. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. It's down in my study. And here's the challenge when we use this. In one situation, the context, the desire is contextually negative. Sin's desire for Cain. But in another, the context, it's actually a good desire. It's a husband's desire for his beloved. It's a husband's good desire for the one whom God has given to him. And in fact, that context, even though that passage is further away, is a lot closer to Genesis 2 than the Genesis 4-7 about sin desiring Cain. Because you recall in Genesis 2, the husband delights, Adam delights in what he sees. He actually breaks out in song about the helper who is fit for him, who the Lord has brought to him. And the result after that is the two become one. Well, what do we do? Do we toss a coin here? No, we look to the Lord and we look to the context of His Word. And what many have not looked at is the immediate context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you have your Bibles, go back to Genesis 3, 6. Where the first woman is led astray. And what does Genesis 3, 6 say there? At the end of there it says, So the woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. In the English we see the same. But the Hebrew word Moses uses here for desire is not the same word that he uses in verse 16. The Hebrew word that Moses uses here for desire is chamad. It's not shawach. They're very different words. And chamad refers to a desire, a wish, a craving for something that is pleasurable and attractive with an intent to possess. And as we read through the rest of Moses' writings, this is the word, Hamad, that Moses uses in Exodus 20.17, Deuteronomy 5.21, and Deuteronomy 7.25 to describe a controlling, dominating, destructive desire. And in those passages, the word hamad is used for covet. Do not covet. Do not desire something that the Lord has not given you. 
according to His Word. And we see this illustrated in Proverbs 6.25. And it's talking about a prostitute or a wayward woman. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. I don't know how many of you guys have been caught by your eyelashes, but don't, okay? Hamad, that's the word that's being used there. But what's more telling is that when Moses talks about a destructive desire that is contrary to the word of the Lord, a desire to control, possess, to covet, he doesn't use the word shawah, he uses Hamad, and he does it repeatedly. And I believe, had the Lord God through Moses intended for us to believe that this desire of woman is to control and dominate and manipulate her husband, if that's what it is here, I believe he would have used Hamad, not Shoah. But even when we go to the context of Genesis 3.6, in Genesis 3.16, What do we see the Lord God doing here? Is He disciplining for the purpose of dividing a marriage? Or is He disciplining for the purpose of putting them back together? Well, let's look at the bigger context. Genesis 1. He creates a beautiful world according to His Word and makes the man and woman together to bear His image. Genesis 2. There is not a helper fit for the man. And it's not good for him to be alone. So he creates a helper fit for him. And the man rejoices and the Lord puts them together. What happens at the end of this passage? In Genesis. Down there at Genesis 3.20. It says at the end of this judgment, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What does the man do? When he names, that means you belong to me. You're my wife. At the end of this judgment, the two are back together again. And then in Genesis 4, Adam knows his wife Eve and she gives birth to a son named Seth who goes on to be part of the line that will ultimately crush the serpent. Is God in His judgment putting them in a relationship to tear this apart with a woman who wants to manipulate her husband and a husband who needs to rule over his wife? And as we look at that word for rule that Moses uses, it is also interesting. Because that word rule, when we look at the immediate context and go back to Genesis 1, it is used with regards to the greater light and the lesser light, the moon and the sun, ruling over the night and the day. It's not used in a negative context. And the Hebrew definition for that word, according to the theological word book, is that rule, that word rule that Moses is using both for the sun and the moon and then here with the husband that he will rule over you refers to governing, leading, protecting, and ordering according to the word of the Lord. It is a protective function and a leadership function. And what's very interesting is you read the first five books of Moses and you go through. Moses uses a very different word when he talks about abuse or oppression or subduing or quote-unquote dominating. A very, very, very different word. 
Sounds different, looks different, is completely different. So Moses has one word that he uses consistently when it talks about subduing or dominating an enemy or an animal. And he has another word that he uses consistently for a rule that is leading, guiding, protecting, and ordering and bringing about the blessing of God's word. And that's the word that Moses uses here. Well, let's put it all together. Rabbi Umberto Casuto says this. He says, The Lord acts towards the first man and woman as a human father to his dearly beloved child who did something contrary to his counsel and thereby brought great harm upon himself. On the one hand, the father rebukes his son for not having followed his word. And on the other hand, he endeavors to remedy the hurt that his son has done to himself. Okay, is this just a feel-good moment here for this passage? When you go and you read Hebrews 12, and you hear about the author of the Hebrews epistle, encouraging and exhorting them to bear with the discipline of a father that is painful for a season, but is given for the benefit of a son so that they can participate in his holiness. And without the holiness of God, we will never see God. Without His holiness, we will not see God. And showing this idea of a loving father providing discipline to bring a child back to His truth and grace. That's Hebrews 12. And then when we come to Jesus in Matthew 19.6, what does Jesus say when they're squabbling about divorce? He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and He says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And Jesus is showing the Pharisees in the New Testament, even after sin has come into the world, God hates divorce, and His desire and the direction of His Word and the provision of His Word is to put marriages back together again, where a woman is going to be protected and cared for as she should, and a man is going to lead and work as he should. That is the intent, that's the design, and that's how we should live. So where am I going with this, brothers and sisters? The message of Genesis 3.16, I believe, is that the Lord God is a good Father and a good Shepherd. And He's a good Father and a good Shepherd who does what we need. He fixes what is broken in our hearts, in our homes, in our marriages, in our churches, and in our nations. And He does so by bringing us, not away from His Word, but back to His Word, and back to the life of His Word. And as a result of that, brothers and sisters, what we really need to do is we need to draw near to Him. We need to consider His Word seriously. And we need to bear with and look for and hope in His justice. Because only His justice, brothers and sisters, has the power to take a man and a woman who are hiding with fig leaves in bushes and throwing each under the bus to ultimately bring them to a place in Genesis 4 where they are participating in His plan of redemption 
and bringing life into the world and fulfilling the promise of God that will one day lead us to the cross and lead us to Christ. Is the marriage that God puts them in in the end of Genesis 3, is it perfect? No. Will some of the woman's desire be contrary to her husband? Yes. Will it be smooth and easy? Or will there be suffering and pain? Yes, it's going to be difficult. Why? Because sin came in in Genesis 3.6. But is God a good shepherd and is He a good father? Does He want what's best for His children? Absolutely. And as a result, brothers and sisters, where do we need to look when things are wrong? We need to look to Him. So there are a couple of pieces of application I want to bring to bear, especially in light of last week. Number one, we should expect racism, injustice, violence, and hatred, and abuse in this world. Why? Because we live in a world that has bought the devil's lies and has turned their back on God. And they refuse to look to the Lord, but instead we have forums and politics and all of these things to get together to talk about everything except the Word of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, we need to expect it. We need to be vigilant. And we need to expect it in the church as well, sadly. Why? Because what we're studying in 1 Timothy. Because men spend time endlessly looking at details rather than considering the truth of the gospel. So let's not be naive about it. And so yes, we've asked the leaders and the deacons and the men of the church to be vigilant, to watch over you, to stand at the back, to make sure that there are people who do not have ill will or plan on doing evil things. And if there's anything sketched, to raise it to the attention. And that there's a network of security. Why? Are we trusting in ourselves? No, because we're living in a world where the world has turned their backs on the Lord. We need to be vigilant. And you need to be vigilant too. But after we're vigilant, brothers and sisters, we have to understand that the only remedy for this comes from the Lord and from His Word and from the Gospel. And if we look to ourselves, all we will be will be angry and bitter like everybody else. The remedy, brothers and sisters, and the message of Genesis 3 is that we need to go to the Lord. And that's what King David did. And we need to go to the Lord to find the help and hope we need. And when we go to the Lord for the help and hope we need, we need to listen very carefully to His Word. I hope what I've shown you, I know it was a little bit nerdy, shall we say. Okay, But one point I want to make is, if we just listen to what everybody's saying, And we don't ourselves, by the power of the Spirit and the help of the Lord, carefully examine the context and the words and the details of God's Word. We're going to end up in a bad place. Because God is showing us that His Word is a life or death matter. It's a life or death matter. And if we deal with the interpretation and the meaning of the words in a cavalier way, then usually what ends up happening is we're taking the things of the world, we're imposing it in God's Word, and we're saying, good enough for us. And there comes a time and place where people who are raised in the church buy into these things, 
And terrible things happen allegedly in the name of the Lord when in fact it is contrary to what the Lord has clearly said. And what has the Lord said? You and I need a Savior and we need a Lord. And we need someone to save us from what we cannot save ourselves from. To fix our broken hearts, to fix our broken marriages, to fix our broken church, and to fix our broken world. And praise God, the Lord has given us Jesus. Will we look to Him or will we continue to look to ourselves? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, You do not tear lives apart. You put them back together again. And we just ask for Your help in this way. Would we be a people who look to You rather than to ourselves to fix what is broken in our hearts and in this world? In your name we pray. Amen.